last ever. Uh, probably not, though. Uh, we thought it'd be good to, uh, from time to time, for you to uh, put questions to us. That to do with the Christian life, with uh, perspectives we, as a chaplain staff, have on, on the faith. And so we asked you to uh, hand in questions on cards so we could think a bit about what we would want to say in response to these things. So we're going to do that. And uh, we, we have not prepared, we don't have prepared statements, anything like that. We want it to be a bit spontaneous. But that's, uh, that's the whole purpose. So I'm going to start this morning with the first question I got. Where did you get that great haircut? <laughs> no, that was yours, Kathy. I'm sorry. Okay. No, here's a legitimate question is, uh, is it better to do the right thing for the wrong reason or not to do it at all? A better way to phrase it would be this. Are we sanctified from the inside out or the outside in? Is it a balance part of both? Well, let's start with that first thing about doing uh, the right thing for the wrong reason. I think it was T.S. Eliot who said the greatest betrayal is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And uh, that's really, well, you might say that's the, uh, the mentality of a hypocrite. Someone who's doing the right thing for reasons that are less than good, like maybe how they look or uh, how people think of them. Uh, my response to uh, the question, is it you know, better to do the right thing for the wrong reason and not do it at all, I would say, well, you do have a choice here. You can do the right thing for the right reason. Um, you can do that, you know. Now, what is the right reason for doing the right thing? It may not be simply because it's your joy, say, to do or love your neighbor. Maybe you're just going to love your neighbor because, well, it's right. You're going to find a way to do it even though you don't want to do it, even though you don't like your neighbor. Uh, but you know there's a lot of things we do in life that uh, we may not feel like doing, but we're certainly not hypocrites if we do them anyway. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, uh, the love of God is the highest reason for doing something right. Uh, but failing love, fear, is okay. <laughs> and I agree with it. Uh, we can do the right things for the right reasons. Maybe not the highest of the right reasons, but simply because we know it's, well, it's the right thing to do. And does God work from the inside out or the outside in? I think he does both. Uh, he wants to change our hearts, but sometimes, you know, um, well, let's put it this way. If I wait for my actions to catch up with my heart, uh, my actions will never be good. And uh, there are times when I found myself just choosing to do what's right, even though my heart really wasn't in it that I found my heart getting in it mm -hmm. when I started doing it. Uh, there's a, there's an, an analogy here in physical therapy. I know a few people who, uh, who are pursuing careers in that right now. And uh, it's called the feedback principle. And sometimes you get people who've been crippled, and uh, even as their uh, spinal column begins to heal, sometimes the, well, the nervous system forgets how to command the motion. So the therapist's job is to get that arm working or that leg working. And it literally does send kind of stuff back to the central nervous system. So it remembers how to do what's right. And sometimes we just ought to do the right thing uh, so our heart can remember uh, what it might have forgotten to do. Yes, God wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to remake our minds from within. But, that, but it's not a hard and fast dichotomy between, uh, well, does, does my action somehow change my heart? Does my heart change my action? I think it's both. And if you have just this much goodwill in you and to act on it, you might find your heart. In fact, I, 
I challenge you to find it otherwise, that your heart will start feeling differently if you start doing what's right. Anyway, Darnisha. Good. I agree with you, Pastor. Okay. <laughs> um, the question that I have this morning is, can chapel be a, a substitute for church? Why attend a church or any other weekly worship service when you're in chapel three times a week? Mm. Well, I don't know about you, but I think Jesus can only meet us three times a week. No, I'm teasing. Um, well, I'll tell you the reasons from, from my perspective why I think it's important uh, not to forsake either. One is the things that we do have in common with a church service. Uh, let's see. We come together, we sing together, and worship together. We pray together. That would be like a church. We hear the word. That would be like church. Um, to a, a small degree, we have just a little bit, bit of fellowship time with each other before and after services. But something that I think, some things that I, I believe that we miss here in chapel that God has given to us when we go to a local church body is that there, there oftentimes is special, are special events especially made, special, special, <laughs> for, uh, for fellowshipping together, not just with peers, but with the elders of the church. I think that is very important for uh, all of us to have those who have gone before, who have really been through uh, many things in their lives, who have wisdom, they know how to pray, they know how to direct us, and I think it's important that we we build relationship with the elders in the church, in our community. And when I say elders, I'm not just talking about those who have been appointed the position of elder in the church, but those who are older than we are. Another thing I think that we miss out um, on if we don't go to a local church body is the privilege of taking communion. We don't get an opportunity to take communion here at chapel service. And what... A wonderful thing it is to partake of the elements. God's, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So I think it's important that we, we obey him and do that. Another thing that for me is like top of the list I love to do is bring tithes and offering to my Savior. The word says bring the tithe and offering to the storehouse. The storehouse traditionally has been the local church body, and we don't get to do that. What an awesome privilege to give back to the Lord just a little bit of what he's given to us. So I think those are things in my mind that we, that we don't do here in chapel service that are important to do at a local church body. So in my opinion, they can't substitute for each other. Any? Editions? I'll toss in one thing. Uh, I was a pastor for 22 years, and uh, over the years I met a lot of people who had been away from church for a long time, and people who had gone to Christian colleges. And uh, whatever spirituality they had before uh, had been pretty much uh, confined uh, to their peers. And there is a huge, really is among graduates of Christian colleges, there's, there's a huge attrition uh, drop-off from any kind of church attendance at all. 
And when I was, especially when I was pastoring in Irvine, I met a lot of young couples who were coming back to church for the first time who had gone to Westmont, um, Vanguard, Biola, APU. Uh, they had gone there, and they just sort of stopped. And then they got into their careers, and then they had kids, and they, oh, man, I want my kid to get something good. It was kind of tragic. It, it was clear that they had not built any bridges between what they knew as college students and what they needed to know about the wider and larger body of Christ. And uh, it was real hard for them to connect. Uh, and they waited too long. Well, waited until they had kids. That's good. I'm glad they came back. But, uh, but you need to be a part of the body of Christ it's in this wider sense uh, just for the sake of your own soul and your future. And I think, too, let me add, they need you. We complain when we go back to our churches, but they're just so stuffy and they just don't know and they just... But if we are absent as young people, then how will they know? How will they see what God is doing in this generation unless we are present? So I encourage you, be there. Yeah, one other thing. <laughs> you, want, you want to throw some... Let's do a battle here. Let's do a battle for... <laughs> I was just uh, going to say, I, I think that it develops a, a holy discipline with, mm-hmm. within us. So that, um, you know, as we discipline ourselves, it becomes much more of a natural kind of, kind of a thing. You know, and if you want to make some old people happy, <laughs> just just come. I mean, we, you, you guys just make old people happy, I tell you. I, you know, when we see the, young, the, see the young folks showing up, you know, you know and if you, uh, it really does make our day. And, it is uh, true. And we, we have a great investment in, uh, in what's happening uh, with your generation. And seriously... It really, it, it just makes people, it stokes them when you show up in church. That's when, probably not the highest reason to go, but if you want to make somebody happy, just go, because they'll be glad to see you. That's right. Kathy, you have a question. I notice you're linking yourself with old people. Um, is that something you'd like to comment on? <laughs> <laughs> well, save that one. I, I, just, I could say something about respecting old people, but I'll, I'll leave that for later. Well... What if you don't adhere to the Christian faith? How should you behave in chapel? Is it any more than a painful requirement? Are there any reasons to listen besides a love for God? I love this question. Um, well, the first and, uh, and, and maybe the most obvious um, is that in the wide range of choices uh, when you come to Westmont, you can choose just about any college out there, given, uh, given the appropriate grades and test scores and all that kind of thing. But you chose Westmont, and Westmont has a requirement. That's the very most basic uh, thing that, that I would say about that. It has a requirement that we have chapel three times a week, and there are reasons for that. Um, but at the very, the very base level, I guess, of this question would be that there's a requirement. Um, Certainly, though, uh, when we choose to uh, uh, come to chapel, uh, as with any other kind of thing in college, when we choose to go to a class, we go to a class assuming that we go with respect and with courtesy. And so, um, you know, I guess I would say coming to chapel and, say, acting like an orangutan wouldn't be appropriate. (laughs) But um, coming to chapel and behaving in a way that you would in a classroom or in a job situation, you know, when we, um, when we take job positions, maybe uh, everything in that job isn't something that we just totally love. But we go uh, and 
we're responsible and we go with respect and we go with courtesy. But I think um, even the more uh, compelling reason uh, for chapel, for someone who maybe doesn't believe in God, would be that when we go to chapel, we go with expectation. You know, when we come to college, we, we come expecting that we're going to learn new things. We're going to encounter new situations. And when we come to chapel, we, um, we very well may, and uh, we pray this daily, that you will encounter the living God. And uh, he's here. And so uh, it's kind of exciting because you come, you may not believe, but because of the worship that's going on around you, uh, you may encounter the living God, and, and, and we're praying for you in that regard. But beyond that, um, it's just that uh, expectation. You know, for those of us that, uh, that know Jesus, and we know everybody on this campus does not have a personal walk with Jesus Christ, and we pray toward that as well. Um, but, but that you, you come um, expecting. Do you go to your classes expecting to learn something? We, we certainly hope so, and you do learn wonderful things. You come to chapel with an air of expectation too, and God will meet you there if you come. So it's um, basically what I, I would say about that. Okay, we'll go to the next question. This is a this is a great question, and, and I hope that in just a little bit of time I have, I can uh, do it some justice uh, because I think it affects a lot of us. As what is the difference between the fear of the Lord spoken of in Proverbs and Philippians 2:13, and the fear that perfect love drives out? The fear Jesus addresses when he says, "Do not fear; I am with you." We aren't given a spirit of timidity. Be strong and courageous, etc. Okay. I know there's a difference in respecting God and being afraid of dark things. My question is rather in the practical, how does this aspect work out? How do I tremble before the Lord whom I love and not to be afraid of some guy who will rape me as I walk home alone in the dark or that my brother will get hit by a car, etc.? How do I find all my courage in someone I'm trembling in front of? How do you trust God? A lot of different ways of saying something is, what do I do with my fear? Now, I know the fear of the Lord is profound respect, uh, that's good. But, you know, I'm just scared. I'm anxious sometimes. Uh, I find myself reacting to things. And uh, I want to just sort of point to two kinds of fear that I think this question uh, aims at. And then they're, they're both, they overlap with each other. But one is just um, simple anxiety. Now, there's really nothing simple about anxiety. Uh, it can come from a lot of places. But it's just that sort of free-floating dread that something bad's going to happen. Uh, for some of us, uh, it's theologically based. You know, we figure if we've uh, had a lot of good weeks uh, or days, uh, there's sort of a cosmic balance that has to be set right. You know, when God has to do something bad, you know, life's supposed to have a little bit of both in it. That's not very good theology. But there's basis for that. But there's a lot of reasons why we may feel just kind of anxious. Uh, maybe we're, we're in situations continually that we feel in over our head. Uh, maybe we've just been deeply disappointed by somebody. Or we've had some fairly significant failures. 
And uh, whatever the reasons are, maybe we grew up in families that were just generally anxious, and it's kind of like a, a virus you get, and it, you just sort of live with it. But whatever its cause, uh, anxiety is something that, um, that the Lord really wants us to be free from. In fact, a great line of scripture in Philippians 4, 6 and following is, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And uh, the peace that transcends human understanding will keep guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's he saying here? Really, Paul's saying, well, tell God about it. Uh, Give thanks as you do. And I love that part, giving thanks as you do, because what you do when you give thanks is you're telling God you think he's really quite competent. Uh, He's really quite able to take care of you. And, uh, And in fact, as your father... It delights him to give you peace and to, uh, to, to have you not be afraid. I'm a father. Uh, the thing that distresses me the most when I looked at my children, especially when they were smaller, was to see them afraid. And as a father, I would do just about anything I could think of to help them not be afraid because they don't need to be afraid. I'm here. And God wants to take away your anxiety. Now, how do, you, how do you do that? Well, I just suggested what Paul suggested. You tell God what you're afraid of. And as you tell him, you do it with thanksgiving. Uh, I, I suggested that a way to deal with guilt a few chapels back when I spoke was, uh, uh, maybe I didn't say this. I'm getting old. Um, but I'll say it again. Uh, I've, I've made it a spiritual discipline to only ask God to forgive me once for anything I do. And the next time I feel bad about it and feel, you know, sort of the, uh, the urge to say, oh, God, forgive me, I feel bad about it. No, I, I don't do that because I figured if I, if I ask him a second time, I'm insulting him. I basically said he didn't mean it when he said he forgave me the first time. So instead of asking God to forgive me a second time, I, when I feel the urge to ask him, I just say, thank you, Lord, that you have. And I would propose as a spiritual discipline with fear and anxiety that you tell God, about the things that scare you. And sometimes you can't even put your finger on it, right? It's just like a cloud that sort of floats over your head is to tell God about the cloud and to thank him as you do that he's God. He can take care of you. I, uh, I do a lot of flying and uh, for years uh, I just, uh, just hated to fly. There's the bad air, there's the tight seats, but gosh, there's that turbulence. I watched uh, the movie Castaway again this weekend, and uh, that's the mother of all fears for me, up in a plane and having it hit big-time turbulence. And I figure every time I hit a bump in the air, it's going to happen, what happened in the movie. And I, you know, I just have years of that. And one day it, it occurred to me, this is just my own personal experience, that, um, that by my fear, I was telling my father I didn't trust him. And... Uh, and rather than feel guilty about it, I just, I just felt sorry. I just felt the sadness. After all these years of walking with his son and trusting in his goodness, I still didn't believe he's going to take care of me. And so I did something that was immensely helpful to me. I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so scared. Would you please forgive me? I really need your help here. And, uh, you know, I'm cured. Just work for me. I don't get scared anymore in turbulence. Uh, 
And if I feel the urge to get scared, I say, Father, I'm so glad that this thing that I get is completely beyond my control is under your control. Well, tell him about it and give thanks. Uh, you might try what I did. There's a second category of anxiety, though, that I think this question comes from. And let me illustrate it first. Uh, I ruptured, uh, uh, well, I actually have a bulging disc in my lower back. And about 20 years ago, these bulging discs were impinging on my sciatic nerve, and I was in incredible pain, so much so that I was put down for six weeks, uh, just total rest. And the doctor told me that I, when I began to rest, he said, you know, the, and he took the x-rays. He said, you know, the, the nerve is not being pressured anymore. I said, it isn't? <laughs> it hurts like it is. He said, no, your nerve is so traumatized that it will act like it's being pressured for quite a while. You'll, uh, you'll feel what you've been feeling for, for some days now, even though the pressure's off because the nerve was so traumatized. And, you know, even to this day, uh, if you saw me in shorts, which is not a pretty sight, but you'd, uh, you would notice that on my right calf, there's, there's a continual little twitch going on. Because that nerve was so damaged 20 years ago, it, I don't feel it anymore. But I can look down, I can see it's still firing off little impulses. And I think there are some of us, we, we can have such terror in our lives that it's like, uh, it's like we just get traumatized. It's, you know, it's post-traumatic syndrome kind of things. And uh, we need to keep telling God about our fear and we need to keep thanking him for it. But we also need to be patient with the process of being, uh, being healed from something that uh, was so dramatic. I mean, God, God sometimes just does it, bang, and he heals us. Uh, more often, it seems to me, that God uses the fear and the pain over a period of time to do a lot of things in our lives uh, and to teach us patience as we grow into, as we lean into his love. And so, you know, I think perhaps this question came from someone who's experienced that kind of trauma. You know, and, and I've had some things happen to me. Uh, I went through two broken engagements. I remember it took me a long time, a long time, to trust uh, a woman again. You know, I got over it. I really did. And, uh, but it took some time. So that's, uh, that's my perspective on this. I think uh, to keep telling the Father what you feel. Keep telling the Father what you don't understand that you feel. And keep giving him thanks that he is your Father. I remember being so uptight and nervous and afraid when I was considering what I was going to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> like, no, oh, Jesus, this is just too big of a decision for me to make right now. And um, I had a graduation party. And this woman who went to church with me gave me this card and wrote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in the card. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to thine own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. That spoke so loudly to my spirit, to my heart, and to my mind. And it has become <laughs> a constant reminder to me in my life to trust my father because he is faithful. 
And every time I'm afraid, the psalm says, I will trust in him. For he is the good one. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And you can rely on him and you can trust in him. He will not let you down. Even when things look dark and disappointing, the Lord promises he will take what the devil meant for evil and turn it around for his goodness. We don't understand how he does that. We didn't plan that, but that's a great way to end. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we believe, or really do, just sometimes we don't, help our unbelief. Lord, I pray that the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding will go with us now and keep guard, be a sentry at our hearts and our minds. Amen. And you're dismissed.